Well, hey, Derek, it's Jay from Roleplay Rescue. Just wanted to say congratulations on getting episode zero up on your podcast. And I do look forward to further episodes from you. I know you've been playing this for a while, mate. uh, So it's really great to finally hear it out there. And I just wish you all the very best. And I'm kind of fingers crossed that I might even have got this message in before Jason Connolly did. But we'll see. Um, Yeah, good luck, man. And speak to you soon. Game on. Well, that was Jay Webster at the top of the show. Thank you, Jay, for the call-in, the first official call-in, and you certainly beat Jason Connolly. I just want to say welcome to my first episode. I'm Derek McLean and a priest in the Church of England. In this episode, I want to explore the short story Morality. This is by Stephen King, and it can be found in the collection The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, published in 2015. I'm guessing that you're either surprised or puzzled or both to find that a priest is into Stephen King. Then again, maybe you're not. My first encounter with King was in high school. No, I've never met him. I wish. And I didn't read a book. I saw the adaptation of Salem's Lot that was on TV. It would be great to pretend that I'm young enough to say it was the Rob Lowe version. But we'd all know I was lying. No, it was the David Soul version. I do know that it wasn't when it aired in the States, but it was the early 80s, and all my form mates were talking about it. For those across the pond, I think you might call that the homeroom. The first King book I read was Christine, and I read it because the movie version was on the way. Honestly, that was it. I was hooked on King from that moment. Although I know it must be depressing to Mr King, but my favourite remains The Stand. It will always be one of my top 10 favourite books of all time. I do, however, adore some of his more recent books, and I may look at one or two of those in future episodes. What I love about King, as with any author who I might talk about, can be summarised in one word. Characters. No matter the genre, no matter how much I may dislike someone's style, not the case here, I assure you, it is always the characters that I come back for. I won't openly disparage any novelist on here, but I will only note that in a certain epic set of books, I gave up in the end because I lost all interest in the characters. I got to the stage where I didn't care whether the character lived or died in that series, so I stopped. I only had 300 pages left to read of this epic, but I just didn't care. When all else is said and done, King is an excellent wordsmith. Rarely do I feel that a character is less than three-dimensional. A few years ago, when I was in conversation with a fellow lover of King, and a man who is a published poet in his own right, we both agreed that the way in which King can portray children, in particular, is just wonderful. It is little wonder that a book like It is such a hit. I first read that one when it came out in hardback. I woke up one morning to my dad shaking my shoulder and handing it to me as his book club choice of the month. He didn't see anything he wanted, so he got it from me. I would have been 17 or 18 at the time. When I read it, I could almost breathe the air of Derry, and I wouldn't have been surprised to see the Losers Club walk past me on the street. That exact book still has a pride of place in my collection. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) 
So this series is all about how I see theology and literature interacting. Apart from the inevitable and sometimes titanic struggle between good and evil, which is the cornerstone of King's books, I think it won't hurt us to hear some words of King himself in an interview, and which will help you to understand why I keep coming back for more, even though these comments only confirmed what I had thought for years. I have read only one biography. It is the one by Lisa Rogak. It is listed in the show notes. In the chapter entitled The Golden Years, uh, Rogak quotes from an interview at the time Desperation was published. And there King says, The idea of God as a character in Desperation was the engine that made the book go. While I don't see myself as God's stenographer, he's always in my books. It depends on the people I'm writing about. Let me make just one disclaimer. I don't intend to do anything like a detailed critique of whether or not the theology and teachings of Christianity are accurately portrayed in literature. Most of the time I see that as somewhat unnecessary. By and large, authors are not professional theologians, and nor should they be expected to be. What I do like is the way in which an author may choose to use Christian themes to create a stimulus, or, more often, a nexus, and wish to explore ideas or resonate thoughts. However, I will, where appropriate, point out if different streams of Christian theology have been mixed up, or if a popular misunderstanding has formed a significant part of the narrative or themes. On that issue, I beg your indulgence. See what I did there? Because it's still my role to teach Christian doctrine to the congregations in my charge. What then of this short story, Morality? When I decided to use morality for my first episode, I did it because I'm an inveterate over-preparer. Now, isn't that a horrible way to express it? But I thought if I did a short story, I would get that out of my system and be able to talk about other books much more succinctly. <laughs> yeah, not me, that's for sure. Here's what happened when I did my close reading of the text. And yeah, I have failed already in keeping things succinct, as you'll see later in the series. So my initial foray through the story was when I read it in a previous version as an extra attached to Blockade Billy. Other than the title, and without any explanatory preface, I find myself fascinated by the presentation of Winnie as a wolf in sheep's clothing. A medically retired Presbyterian minister wrestling with that one last temptation or desire to effectively commit a pointless act of violence, to sin in a huge way as Winnie saw it. Rereading the slightly revised version with King's preface only confirmed my initial read, but took it to a greater depth. My close read of the text also confirmed the subtlety and depth of the story. What do I mean? Well, let's take the theme of deceit in the story. There are many obvious and quite a few subtle pointers to this theme. There is the use of things being flagged as done by the left hand or on the left side. With all due respect to those sinistrels out there, left in Latin is the word sinister and word I'm sure we've all used. Check any standard dictionary 
and I'm fairly certain that you'll find that sinister will give you words like malicious, underhanded, or something harmful or evil. When Nora disguises herself, she chooses to have red hair and indicates her readiness to hit the child by using her left hand. In art history, red hair is a very provocative symbol and is used to signify a number of things. Here I'll focus on the negative associations. One of the earliest and most consistent portrayals of a woman with red hair is none other than Mary Magdalene, who, until quite recently, was incorrectly regarded as a reformed prostitute and the patron saint of penitent sinners. Her red hair was a symbol of sinful lust. The other famously negative portrayal of a redhead in Christian art is Judas Iscariot. So deceit and betrayal, excellently reinforced in the story in these ways, and given the recurring references to Freud, the sexual element is also worth noting. We'll return to the issue of Freud in a bit. In terms of Winnie, well, I could probably do an entire episode on that, but let's just do a brief look. Due to his stroke, it is his left hand that he has to use, and his face is frozen in the serpentine S. The biblical reference to the devil is ironically reinforced by Nora's recollection of the story of the temptations of Jesus. There is even more. At first she notices that his eyes are not sheep's eyes, then that he has sheep's lips but the teeth of a wolf. Later, and just before the reference to the serpentine smile, she realises that his face is a mix of sheep and wolf. All of this reinforces the biblical imagery of false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. Here you could do worse than remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. There is more that I could say on the theme of lies and deceit, such as the ironic reference to Peter's denials. But I want to move on and look at other themes. So let's consider the biggie in every way. Sin. I don't normally assume that people understand the word sin anymore, so I do want to give you a working definition that I use. For me, biblically speaking, sin refers to broken relationships. Taken as a whole, and allowing for the idea of holiness as something set apart for God, sin in some way defines the breaking of relationships between people or between a person and God. This can be everything from telling a lie or taking a pen from the work stockpile through to murder and treason. The destruction of Noah's relationship with her husband is, of course, also a significant part of the story. But that will be touched on when I turn to Freud. Having said that, it is best to remember that whilst all sin is wrongdoing, not all wrongdoing is sin. That takes a little getting your head around. But think of the issue of passive or non-violent resistance. You can resist an unjust law, and the government will call it wrongdoing, but that doesn't make it sin. And this goes to the very heart of the story in my reading, of seeing if morality and sin are connected, and to what extent. From a Christian perspective, yeah, they most definitely are. Therefore, it was with a sense of the intentional irony built into her statement that I read Nora's exclamation and Winnie's counterstatement with his sheep lips, wolf teeth. Nora says, 
I believe in wrongdoing, Winnie, but I don't believe in sin. And Winnie's response, that's fine, but sin believes in you. Utterly delicious. I savoured that exchange in the story. It's rich and it's full. How often have I heard that sort of exchange but with the word God instead of sin? I think I even had a belly laugh the first time I heard it in a movie. We can of course note that, like Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov, Nora may work her way to the point of committing the crime, but she finds that it is not consequence-free. The existential reality of her act hits home, and in some ways just as devastatingly. If we look at Winnie's self-understanding of who and what he is, we'll also see something going on here that helps. First, a slight correction, and it is slight. I do believe that King had in mind the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector when Winnie describes his life as a Presbyterian minister. The long list of all the things he did right, making him not like others, could just as easily turn up in a modern version of the parable. If you remember, the Pharisee stands there and his long prayer is a very favourable comparison with the tax collector, because he's not like him over there. However, and here's the slight correction, you won't find a belief in the seven mortal, or deadly, or capital, choose whatever phrase you like, sins in standard reformed belief. That was the system which the reformers rejected. And since when he is Presbyterian, then all you need to do is check out the 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith, the founding document of the Presbyterian Church, as written by the Puritans in 1642-44. Let's go with the artistic license. Let's blur it a little bit and see what happens with Winnie. The wonderful paragraph in which Winnie justifies his desire to actually commit a so-called serious sin is a masterpiece in weaving in references to the seven deadly sins. They are all ticked off in his speech. Pride, sloth, greed, lust, gluttony, envy and wrath. Having said that, it might be easy for the son of such a moneyed family not to feel greed, unless it is defined as not using the money for the benefit of others. And of course... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Sorry, my inner Python escaped there. But yes, that wonderful reference to inquisitorial argument, sinning by thought, word or deed. Well, it's not just the Inquisition. As an Anglican priest, I often lead the corporate confession in a communion service which is modelled on the idea that sin is by thought, word or deed. Winnie at least knows that verse often quoted in the New Testament, but from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. We all like sheep have gone astray, and which Paul uses in Romans to fortify his argument that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On this, I might be saying one connection too many. But I cannot fail to see a link with the story of the young man in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, who thinks he has followed all the Ten Commandments, until Jesus helps him to see that what he values more is his money. He values it more than God or humanity, and so he walks away sad because money is his God, and therefore the young man has broken the first commandment, no other God than God. This also brings us to another consideration, again woven throughout the story. 
that verse that can so easily be misquoted, the love of money is the root of all evil. Does Winnie love his money too much? Now that would be worth exploring. But I think it's fair to say that given his implied vast wealth, Winnie could have given her the 200,000 and not even noticed it. Nora, very understandably, has made the acquisition of wealth the way to end the money problems which the couple have. Anyone who has ever faced serious money concerns or worries can understand where she is coming from. But in Freudian terms, has she fetishized it? Has she idolized money as her solution? Has she really given that solution so much power over herself? Is that why she struggles so much with the Winnie's offer? Personally, I'd say yes to that. Time and again, Winnie has been described as a good listener. They don't get me wrong. That is an essential tool in pastoral work. So you would expect a Presbyterian minister to be good at it. The question is, given the increasingly loud pointers to the issue of Winnie being a false teacher and the demonic associations by the end, has he misused his skill and exploited this chink in her armour? I think that's a fairly strong certainty. And with that, I do want to turn to look at Freud. Would you like to tell me about your mother? I wouldn't normally bring Freud into it. I don't have a lot of time for his theories, especially given the body of study which disproves him. Having said that, King highlights Freud several times. Once might be an aside, but more than once has to be considered deliberate, especially given the behaviour of Nora as the story progresses. So what is being said? The first time Freud comes into it, when he says to Nora, and I quote, If you think this is about sex, I assure you it's not. At least, I don't think so. If one looks below the surface, and if one, have, if one has read Freud, I suppose any aberrant act may be said to have a sexual basis. I don't know myself. I haven't studied Freud since seminary, and even there my reading was cursory. Freud offended me. He seemed to feel that any suggestion of depth in human nature was an illusion. He seemed to be saying, what you think of as an artesian well is actually a puddle. I beg to differ. Human nature has no bottom. It is as deep and mysterious as the mind of God. Unquote. In all fairness, Winnie's reading of Freud isn't accurate. It doesn't take long in reading Freud before you encounter the idea of the unconscious and the role of the id. If anything, it is about the only thing in Freud I have sympathy with, the sheer complexity of the human heart. As you find in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And of course, the immediate response in Jeremiah is God. Leaving aside any discussion of psychosexual development, the key for how I see the use of Freud in this story is the eros-thanatos duality that are supposed to be basic to human nature. Eros is about creativity, health, reproduction and sustenance. Thanatos, to use the later ascribed name, is associated with our violent side and drives us to commit murder and mayhem. It causes fear, anger, aggression and arguments. This is fairly clear in what happens to Nora and her relationships with others. 
In terms of theology, what Nora does is sin. She allows her idolization of money to get the better of her, and she, even in a small way, abuses a child. There are times when she is very close to backing out, but the lure of the money is too much. There is even a playing around with the idea of a seared conscience. In the first letter to Timothy, false teachers are described as teaching falsely and leading others astray because their consciences have been seared or blunted. The implication being that in Christian theology, one's conscience has a significant role to play in making us aware or not of who God is and what God wants. If the conscience is seared enough, we lose the ability to hear God. Clearly, Nora gets to that point also. How or why Winnie has managed to get such a seared conscience? Well, we could speculate around a number of areas, but the evidence is insufficient. But for Nora, she clearly says, to quote, if anything feels wrong, I'll come back. Unquote. What's not to feel wrong in this unnecessary hitting of a child to satisfy an old man's desires and to gain money for herself? Talk about your seared conscience. Going back to my earlier statement that sin is best understood as a broken relationship, and combining that with what I have said about Nora sinning, here's where we can cross to the Freudian ideas. The decision to sin by carrying out the act for the money immediately begins to show itself in the way her relationships are damaged. She grows in distrust for Winnie, and given his blasé advice to deceive the IRS, and his desire to abuse a child by proxy. Who can blame her? However, her primary relationship with her husband, Chad, disintegrates the most, and in a very Freudian way. If Eros is a life-affirming instinct in humanity, then the use of sex to seal the bargain to commit the act against the child is deeply ironic. The fact that in terms of Freudian compulsion, she repeats with increasing desperation the sexual act with her husband to recapture what was lost is clear. That it is not recoverable without facing up to what she has done is reflected in the sexual act being increasingly dominated by violence or thanatos. Having failed to recapture what was lost, her compulsive behaviour leads her to adultery. Something is wrong, but she doesn't know how to fix it, and the violence follows her into these acts also. So much for not believing in sin. At this point I can't help but be reminded of the verse in the letter of James, for whoever breaks the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For all his self-righteousness, Winnie clearly has failed to understand about sin and forgiveness. When he is trying to help entice Nora to help him, he says the following. To quote, What doubles sin is saying to yourself, I will do this because I know I can pray for forgiveness once it is done. To say to yourself that you can have your cake and eat it too. I want to know what being that deep in sin is like. I don't want to wallow. I want to dive in over my head. Unquote. Yes, it is reminiscent of Paul's statement in Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it a longer? This is why there is such a, an irony in Winnie when explaining what he wants Nora to do, saying, 
such grave matters as sin and forgiveness should remain between man and God. I love that ironic pun, grave matters. Now why is it ironic? Because when he makes that most common of misquotations, yes, Romans 6 does say that the wages of sin are death, but it also goes on to say that the free gift of God in Jesus Christ is eternal life. Death may be earned, but heaven is free as a gift. This focusing on the first half of the verse is so common that I can easily forgive when he there. Except, of course, it is so vital to understanding what is going on in Romans that its omission may be very telling. In the end, of course, when he commits, in Roman Catholic terms, the sin of despair. Failure to trust in a loving God, and in doing so, he takes his own life. I have so much more that I would like to explore, but I am also aware that I am coming very close to the time that I set myself. I hope you have enjoyed this exploration of all King's short stories. I really don't have the arrogance to claim that I didn't get anything wrong, but I have enjoyed preparing this for you. If you liked it, I hope you'll come back for more. Next time I want to look at a novella by Brian Moore called Catholics. This is a novella written in the early 70s, and it explores what might happen if there were to be a fourth Vatican Council which seeks unity with Buddhism. Yes, you heard that right. Unity with Buddhism. The link for the book is in the show notes. In the meantime, I'm Derek McLean, and you've been listening to Rev. Derek's Ruminations. Let's keep reading. <laughs>